Good morning. Please go ahead and open your Bibles back up to John chapter 8. Now, as you turn there, uh, many of you astute observers have probably noticed that we are starting at verse 12 today, uh, which means we are skipping the first 11 verses of the chapter. And uh, there's actually a good reason for that. That's because we agree with the brief but very important footnote in your Bibles concerning the section, which reads, at least in my ESV, it says, the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter seven, verses 53 to verses, or chapter eight, verse 11. Uh, which means basically this, uh, this story is not included in any of the earliest manuscripts or copies of the Gospel of John. And while this is a wonderful story that I actually really like and enjoy, uh, most scholars agree that it's not original to John. And thus, it, it actually does not belong here, which is why we're going to be picking up from chapter 8, verse 12. Now, uh, if you have any further questions about this, uh, myself or Carrie would be happy to discuss uh, any of those with you afterwards. And I actually have a little printout that kind of sums up our rationale, you know, that you can take home and, and look over if you'd like. And we'll also be putting that up on the website afterwards. Um, uh, maybe we could turn the mic down a little bit. I'm hearing a little bit of feedback. So uh, with all that said, I'd like to begin now with a question. And that question is, what do you think your life would be like without light? <laughs> okay. So uh, I'm not asking you to imagine a slightly dimmer version of your life, you know, somehow with less light. Uh, sadly, we're already living in that reality as we move into these more overcast and colder months. Instead, what I'm asking you all to consider or imagine is your life without any light at all. An existence plunged into utter darkness all of the time. I sense that some of you are, even at the thought, you're already uh, feeling a sense of dread. <laughs> Your heart beats racing. And I think rightfully so. Because we all understand that on some level, light, even in small quantities, is extremely precious and valuable. How valuable? Well, I don't think I'm overstating it when I say that without light, there is no life. For any of us, uh, light is truly essential. It's this utterly non-negotiable necessity. Uh, that said, uh, one thing that struck me as I started looking at today's passage, and maybe you can relate, is just how much I take the light for granted or just kind of presume upon it you know, arriving day to day into my life, uh, which probably means I should presume upon it less and perhaps instead take a moment to actually contemplate it, to receive, uh, even if there's, you know, just a little in the day, to receive it all as a gracious gift from God above. Now here's the really interesting thing about God and his relationship to light. According to the book of Genesis, light happens to be the very first thing that God decides to speak into existence when he decides to bring the world into existence. 
Uh, Just listen as I read uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. And I hear them a little differently now. They're a little bit more spine-tingling. His very first act in creation. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. So right from the beginning... The scriptures introduce introduce us to God, who for some reason is so deeply vested in life that he decides to impart or send something of his own life into the world. And the very first way God chooses to express his life is by speaking glorious light into existence by his very word. And keeping Genesis and and the creation of light in mind, let's return our attention to the Gospel of John and to our first point for today, which is going to be, by the light of Jesus, we see the Father. That is, by the light of Jesus, we see none other than God himself. And the very first thing that we encounter here today in in, in chapter 8, verse 12, is, is Jesus very audaciously claiming to be God's very light. Let's look again at chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, we got to keep in mind the background because Jesus makes this announcement in basically one of the largest sections or, or halls in the temple known as the treasury. And he's doing so toward the end of one of the biggest and best celebrations or festivals, just a, a, a big public party on the Jewish people's calendar, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, which means he's probably announcing this before a very large crowd who's also probably very familiar with the book of Genesis. But another important thing to know is that when Jesus makes this announcement about the light and the life, he's already been marked for death. There's murmuring and talk in the crowd about, oh, this guy is marked. The Jewish leaders have had enough of him and his growing influence. There's rumors that actually they're planning to arrest him and kill him as soon as possible. Now with that as the backdrop, Jesus ain't holding back. He's going to add some fuel to the fire and make what is this seemingly outlandish claim to be the light of the world. And not only that, but that whoever follows him, him, not the Jewish leaders, not any other institution, but whoever follows him will have the light of life. Now, uh, yeah, all that sounds a bit bold of Jesus, but if you've been following along the past few weeks, you know that this is sort of par for the course for him because he's already made very similar outrageous claims about himself. Uh, Most recently in chapter 6, he declared himself to be the very bread of life, which is, you know, bread is synonymous with food back then. And then last week in chapter 7, Jesus invited all who are thirsty to come to him and drink. So, food, drink, and now with the light, uh, Jesus is using these physical things, not just things though, right, but their physical necessities to convey this great 
spiritual truth, which is you want to live, come to me. You want to live, you must come to me. And Jesus kind of, uh, you know, making this claim, to be the light of the world is actually the climactic claim because not only is, is light essential for life, it also came first into creation. Now, I think since we're basked in the light so often, we kind of develop some uh, popular misconceptions about light. So here's this uh, somewhat interesting and somewhat counterintuitive truth about light. Um, well, I think one thing we often presume is that we think it's with our eyes that we see the light. But that's not actually seeing the full picture. Because the reality is, guess what our eyes are able to see apart from light? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. So apart from light, there is no sight. So I'd say it's actually truer to say it is by the light that we see. It is by the light that we're even able to see. I really actually like how Psalm 36 verse 9 captures this idea. Let me go ahead and read it for you. For with you, O Lord, is the fountain of life. That is, he's the, he's the source of all life. And in your light do we see light. And I think this little line from the psalm captures the big idea that I hope you'll all take away from today's passage, which is this, that it is only by Jesus, the light of the world, that we're able to truly see. Put another way, it's by the light of Jesus that we see light. Okay? And do you realize, Christian, that this is God's heart for you in Christ? That you actually see him? That you truly know him? That he's not hiding from you? He actually wants you to walk in the light and learn what it means to be fully and truly alive? But here's something sad and surprising about that. It's actually sometimes the most religious of us that have the hardest time accepting God's very light. And we're gonna see exactly this in, in Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees because it's none other than the Pharisees whose claim to fame is as the elite interpreters and keepers of God's law. They're the ones that immediately take issue with Jesus' announcement or claim to be the light of the world. Look with me at verse 13. This is their response. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Now basically the Pharisees are saying here that they don't even have to consider what Jesus has to say because they have this principle from the law of Moses which you know, requires at least two witnesses to corroborate uh, criminal charges being brought against a person. Now, it's actually not very clear how they're uh, justifying applying this principle or law to Jesus in this situation. But what is clear is that the Pharisees seem to be grasping at anything, any, any kind of like authority that they can use in order to judge and condemn Jesus. 
But there's a tragic irony in all this, which was pointed out last week toward the end of, of chapter 7, where we saw very clearly that while these leaders like to use the law to condemn people like Jesus as well as others, they were not very interested in having that law applied to themselves. We saw this profoundly blind hypocrisy when uh, Nicodemus, who's one of their own and, and a high-ranking one at that, he objected before his colleagues about arresting Jesus. You remember that? And he pointed out that, that the law actually commands other, otherwise in such cases. Look with me at John chapter 7, verse 51, to see uh, Nicodemus's ob- objection. 751. Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So at this point, we have to ask, what's really going on here? What's really going on here? What's really at the heart of all this opposition to Jesus from these leaders? You know, they're supposed to be faithful experts on the law but they're flagrantly violating it in order to try to get rid of Jesus. Well, uh, many chapters ago, John already gave us a preview of what to expect. He already shined a light on what's really behind all this. And it's ultimately a spiritual conflict. John explains it in terms of how darkness always responds to the light. Please go ahead and flip back with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, and let's read verse 19 to read John's verdict about what's going on. Chapter 3, verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. So if Jesus is who he claims to be, the light of the world, means his, his, his mere presence exposes the works of darkness. And thus, the darkness reacts in hatred, scurries away from it, like uh, Carrie's example from a few weeks ago. Uh, it's like when you turn on a light and all of a sudden the cockroaches scurry away into the shadows. It's kind of what we're seeing. Now, returning to chapter 8, go ahead and flip back there. Let's look at how Jesus, the light of the world, responds to these so-called judges of the law. Chapter 8, verse 17. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself. And the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. Uh, Jesus is saying in no uncertain terms here, God's law vindicates me as righteous. You got nothing on me. And if you were really looking for God, 
you would indeed see that he has sent me. He has sent me for this very purpose, actually, so that you can truly see him, know him. Because again, it is by Jesus that we see the Father. Now here's the really interesting thing about Jesus referring to God as Father, and maybe this is also something we don't often give thought to. Uh, It was actually not at all common for the Jews in Jesus' day to refer to God as their Father. In fact, the leaders got really angry at Jesus when he did so. So why does Jesus call God his Father and invites his followers to do the same? Interestingly enough, the answer John actually gave in the opening chapter, in the very beginning. And what do you know? Knowing God as Father has something to do with receiving God's true light. Go ahead and flip back there, John chapter 1 with me. John chapter 1, verse 9. You can also just listen as I read. John chapter 1, verse 9. The true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In summary, here's the true light of the world, which, by the way, is offered to everyone. Jesus doesn't announce himself as the light of Israel or the light of the Jews. He says the light of the world. And if we believe his name, this will effectively give us a new birth. It'll be like we're born again, actually. And whose children will we be? Who will be our father? God himself. God himself. And now our foremost identity will be as God's very children, his beloved sons and daughters. And not by accident, not by something that religious men make up so as to console themselves, but by God's very own will. Will is referring to his very heart, his desire, his intent. So do you know, Christian, that this is who you truly are on account of God shining his light upon you? in the light of his son, Jesus Christ, that you are by faith and only by faith a beloved child of God. And now you can call upon God as even Jesus calls upon him as your perfect heavenly father. And yet... And yet, this incomparably precious gift of the light of life is something that people can and still do often reject, and the Pharisees are an example of this, because in one sense, they're a picture of our shared spiritual condition 
in darkness. And this raises an important question. What is it exactly that keeps us, like the Pharisees, in the dark and unwilling to receive the light? Jesus actually mentions uh, what's getting in the way. It's two things, and they make up the sum of human darkness. These two things are the flesh and sin. And this brings us to our second point today, which is by the light of Jesus, we see ourselves. Let's look at how Jesus, the light of the world, begins to expose the darkness by calling out the flesh in verse 14. Turn back to chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 14. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Uh, Now, Jesus might come off sounding a bit cryptic here, at least initially he did to me, uh, when he says things like, uh, you don't know where I come from or where I'm going. But actually, I think Jesus is simply describing the typical pattern by basically we, we get to know anyone and everyone, uh, which often goes like this. First, we try to understand someone's past, where they came from, all right? And then we move on to try to figure out where they're headed in life, where they're going. And then and only then do we kind of synthesize an understanding of who they are in the present, who they are now, right? Uh, For example, this is often the pattern that you see in the get to know you dance, the very awkward one in dating. Uh, Two people try to get together and understand where they both come from, right? Their history, where they come from. And then where they plan to go in the future, you know, their plans, their hopes, their dreams, And that's all about trying to make sense of each other in the present. And from that, you decide, you know, am I going to move on or commit? But according to Jesus, the Pharisees have no clue as to how to discern who he is or actually how to understand or know him. They understand, they do not understand where he's from, and thus they have no idea where he's truly going. So they end up with this patently false judgment of of him, right? Which according to Jesus has one root cause. Let's look again at verse 15. He says, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Now it's important to know that by flesh, Jesus is not referring to like the literal finite physical body here. Uh, Depending on the context, the word can mean that, right? As, As... when, it, when, when John writes, the word took on flesh, he's talking about the physical body. But here, the term flesh is referring to something that actually stands in opposition to the light. Which means flesh in this context also is referring to that which opposes God's very own spirit, spirit, flesh. So in effect, Jesus is actually trying to show the Pharisees here hey, you're in the dark because you're judging me according to this completely incapable flesh. 
And here's what we're told about the flesh in many places in the scriptures. We're told that if we live by this flesh or judge ourselves and others in reliance upon it, something called sin will rule over you and over the entire person in body, soul, spirit, mind, desires, emotions. And it often looks very pious, very externally religious, very observant. Which is why after Jesus points out how they're operating in the flesh, he goes on to warn them about sin and the consequences of sin. Look at verse 21 with me. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Wow, these are some of the most sobering and terrifying words that I've ever heard come out of the mouth of Jesus. But again, uh, the Jewish leaders seem to completely miss the point. Here's Jesus warning them about their death. But they just end up speculating about how Jesus is going to die. All right? Here's Jesus warning them to consider their own, their own mortality, and he tells them in no uncertain terms that to reject him is to reject the very light of life, and that this will have only one possible outcome. Verse 24, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now, if, if the passage ended there... Uh, the situation would seem quite hopeless, wouldn't it? But as we keep reading, we, turn, we, we actually realize that it's not. Because just when all hope seems lost, there's a sudden unexpected kind of question that, that represents a glimmer of hope uh, in this interaction between Jesus and the religious leaders. In fact, this turn uh, even ends with, with some quote-unquote, believing in Jesus in verse 30, right? Verse 30 says, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Now, I do want to say uh, next week we're going to examine just what sort of belief this actually was because we've already seen in John's gospel that not every expression of belief always lasts or is very genuine. Uh, nevertheless, this turn in the conversation opens up with this uh, exasperated question that is actually quite more honest than the others. It's like when you get into an argument with your spouse and you just finally get down to brass tacks and figure out what it is that you're fighting about. Uh, anyways, here's that question in verse 25. So they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world that I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So to this question, who are you? Jesus basically answers, 
The answer can be found in what I've pretty much been telling you this whole time from the very beginning. That's, I'm still on that message, and that's the message that I've been sent to share uh, with you by my father. But frustratingly, again, it ends with their misunderstanding. And we're told that the Pharisees still aren't quite getting it. You know, verse 27, they did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the father. Uh, you might be tempted to wonder at this point, why does Jesus keep wasting his time? Doesn't he know when to cut his losses? Well, it's here that I think we find the biggest surprise in all of this. Jesus isn't expecting them to get it. At least, with, not without further direct intervention from him. Okay? Maybe an example of this is kind of like how I talked to my children when they were in the womb. And then when they were infants, I didn't do so expecting them to understand me. I kept talking to them because I love them. And I was going to teach them. I was going to help them along. So if we keep reading, it turns out that God the Father through Jesus, he has a plan to intervene to help this world which has been plunged into darkness because of sin, to help them see and thus receive the light of the world. Now, remember how I said earlier, without light, there, there is no sight? Well, I, I want to add an important qualifier to that because the fact of the matter is, if you're physically blind, your eyes have no power to discern any light, regardless of how much you're given. And if you're blind, what you actually need is, if you're, if you're going to see, you're going to need a new set of eyes, healed from the darkness, able to receive the light. And a clue about uh, Jesus' intervention, we get this in the very next place where he repeats this very same line about how he is the light of the world. Flip over your, your flip over a page to chapter 9, verse 5, where Jesus happens to heal a man born blind. Okay, let's read chapter 9, verse 5. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and, sent, and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Wow. Right? This is why Isaiah 9 was our first reading which describes the arrival of the Messiah in these terms. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Put all this together, and the simple point is, 
the only way any of us are ever going to see the light of the world or to receive Jesus is if he creates in us new eyes that can see him. Which means this, it's not just the Pharisees that are spoken of being in the darkness. It's the whole world, isn't it? It's all of us. We're all in desperate need of new spiritual eyes created new by the light. Even the way that Jesus heals, right? Echoes Genesis, takes the mud, the dirt, the dust. and the... What we all need is for him to touch our very eyes and further, we must respond in obedience of faith to his word, immersing ourselves in the pool of the one who was Siloam, which means sent, the sent one. Now flip back to chapter 8. Jesus does actually tell us, and these leaders, exactly, exactly where and how they're going to truly come to see the light and recognize him as the one sent by the Father. Let's read chapter eight, verse 28. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Whenever Jesus speaks of himself being lifted up, which also means exalted, Jesus is always only talking about one thing, the cross. He's talking about being lifted up, exalted at the cross. Because it's at the cross where Jesus will actually take care of the problem of darkness once and for all. That's where he's going to defeat all the works of darkness and atone for sins once and for all. We can finally put this darkness of wars and rumors of wars, dissensions, rivalry, deceit, lust, the hell on earth that we get to experience day in and day out and, and tempts many of us like nips at all of our heels, pushing us toward madness at times. Jesus says, if you want to see the light, look to him when he is lifted up. And the beauty of it is at the cross, what's ushered in is the thing that will ultimately destroy the flesh, the age of the spirit, where sin and death are defeated, and the flesh will no longer have any reign over us because now we're going to be made new to walk by the Spirit. Come to men's Bible study where we're studying just that as we look at the fruit of the Spirit. And here's another very encouraging thing. If Jesus is any clue to what this new cross-illuminated life is going to look like, we can also rest assured that we will never have to face the darkness alone. Alone. Because literally nothing in heaven or on earth will be able to separate us from the love of God ever again. 
because we're going to know exactly where we come from. And even better, we're going to know exactly where we're going. Because we will walk by faith, relying on this very light, on this very promise of the Lord. Hear it again. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, it is in the light of your Son that we see light. We ask that you heal and open our eyes to behold him and to believe so that we may follow him and walk not in darkness, but in the very light of your eternal life. And it's in Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.